This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening in today on Green Living Ideas Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly. And today I have with me as my guest, Craig Manoa, who is an environmental scientist with the Organic Consumers Association. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Well, so what does an environmental scientist do? Oh, the academic background is in ecology. It's sort of mixed ecology with a lot of the political sciences so that you can you can learn to really understand our, our biological world, but at the same time apply that to a, a political framework. Um, my work with the Organic Consumers Association is uh, pretty diverse, which is nice. I like the flexibility, but a lot of it is uh, researching new studies that are uh, 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 recently published and interpreting those, uh, um, overseeing some of our campaigns, uh, doing a lot of writing, uh, and that can be writing to our readers, writing for our website, or writing uh, our politicians, or if, if we if we are a, a target for a certain campaign as a, a corporation or something like that, I'll, I'll write the, the petitions and, and, and letters and things like that. So you actually directly petition certain corporations as well? Yep, it's a it's a pretty wide gamut. I, uh, probably fifty percent of our actions are uh, businesses, and fifty percent of our actions are politicians. But we do put a lot of emphasis on uh, the consumer power. I mean, I mean, we have the petitions, and we have do a lot of uh, uh, letter writing campaigns, which have been. Uh, uh, successful at times and not so successful at other times. But even more so, we do a lot of education of the consumer to help them understand uh, different types of products that might be uh, a good ethical product to buy and those products that might not be the smartest to buy. Okay. So just so our audience can understand, uh, you know, our audience is people that are looking to live greener and more sustainably in their lives. And, and certainly food and the way we shop is a big part of that. And just so people can understand sort of the organic, the, the association itself, the Organic Consumers Association, who, where, you know, where, when did the group start? Who is behind it? You know, is it, is it like sort of a, one of these grassroots type organizations or are you getting funding federally at another level? Can you tell us a little bit about the structure? Yeah, we're a 501c3 organization, so we're a nonprofit. Uh, our, our income sort of varies at, at the present time. The vast majority is from private donations. We've got uh, five, a half a million member supporters across the country. Not all of them are, are donors, but a, a portion of them uh, donate to the organization. And then that funds the different issue areas that we focus on. And we'll do regular polls and surveys of our uh, members and readers to find out where they want us to focus more efforts. And uh, we also get funding from grants here and there and a little bit of uh, sponsorship funding, too. 
but um, at this point in time, we don't actually have any federal grant funding. Okay, and how many how many members in the or not how many members, but how many um, employees or people working with volunteer or otherwise in the association itself? Uh, it's, it sort of fluctuates for for paid employees. Uh, I would say it's probably around 15, 10, 10 to fifteen, and most of those are part timers. And uh, then we work with a lot of volunteers, uh, particularly in expanding some of our local work. We recently started to uh, branch off from being uh, having the U.S. national focus to uh, having different state chapters. And with that, we really rely on uh, our volunteers. Okay. Well, so I'd like to drill in. I'd like to spend uh, a good bulk of time here in our interview talking about some of the issues that really are around uh, organics. And, and you know, and I think we should probably just start with the term and the, the word organics, because one of the things from from a sort of a consumer level perspective for myself, I know that um, you know, be, being in Northern California, we're sort of in the hub of you know all things uh, you know organic and natural food movement, and and a lot of it started here, obviously. Um, in this country, and so what's been interesting to watch, again, from a consumer standpoint, is that, you know, California's been sort of doing that, has had that movement for many, several decades, but just as it sort of gets on the national radar screen, uh, where, you know, you've got people even, you know, in sort of the middle of the country and such starting to, you know, get, I mean, for example, some of the big food uh, chains, um, you know, you've got the, you know, the Safeways, and I'm sure in the in the Midwest, you know, Kroger's and so forth, they're starting to have a lot more organic foods uh, available. Available. But at the same time, we see that happening, that market penetration and sort of the mass market uh, taking this on into its consciousness. We see things happening like the, the, you know, the, the changes to the organic label in such a way that, you know, there doesn't have to be the same percentage of organic um, components in the foods or the uh, the way that the uh, foods were grown. And so I know one of the examples in recent history was Budweiser being able to label its beer as being organic when, in fact, uh, a good percentage, and I don't know the exact numbers, was a non-organic uh, components. So what is your perspective on that? Are, are these standards being watered down uh, right now? Is that what the fight's really about? Yeah, that's gotten to be an increasing increasingly more complicated part of our work uh, as organics have sort of exploded in the marketplace and become so popular. Uh, there's a lot of profit incentive there. And so whereas back in the 80s, for example, where people were kind of looking for the California organic standard because that was the best really to look for, um, uh, it was it was more of a niche in the market, uh, a small niche, and so you had co-ops and natural food stores, and you had specific a specific uh, niche of shoppers that were seeking out those types of foods, and those were sort of more of the hardliner uh, or organic uh, consumers at the time. But then with the USDA organic standards coming into place uh, just a few years ago. Uh, it got to be uh, something that was increasingly popular and mainstream consumers started to understand a little bit better what organic actually meant and that was very attractive to them, which is a good thing and that has really helped the organic market uh, become the fastest growing sect of the food market. But at the same time, when you've got something that's that successful, uh, it changes the, uh, the sort of makeup of the businesses that are pr- providing those products. So whereas in just a decade ago and, and prior, the organic businesses were businesses that were established on the ethics of organics. And so they're mostly mom-and-pop businesses that were uh, just really attracted to the environmental um, ethics of organics. 
But now the attraction is the profit. So you've got these major corporations like Kraft and like you mentioned, Anheuser-Busch and uh, Walmart uh, stepping in. And they're interested in the profits. And when, you're, when your sole interest is in the profit margin, mm-hmm. you're, uh, you tend to have also have the intention of weakening uh, regulations regarding that so that you can make the product in a more inexpensive way and increase your profit margin. And, and of course, behind that is the lobby that these industries carry and these major vendors and who they represent. Massive, massive lobby, and it's really difficult for organic consumers and uh, family farmers to have a voice in Washington when uh, there's well-paid industry lobby there working on our politicians every day. So is that part of what the Organic Consumers Association is doing is sort of helping increase the sort of the voice level for those folks? Yeah, basically, it's 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 taking uh, the feelings of organic consumers uh, by the tens of thousands and um, pulling those together into one loud voice in in Washington or towards various businesses, and and together uh, we're able to uh, make some substantial changes. What can we be doing as consumers today to protect you know the, these standards and ensure that? You know that they that they remain at a high level where the you know the terms become meaningless because that's what I'm concerned about personally is that the, a lot of these terms are at risk of becoming somewhat meaningless. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one really important thing to do is to educate yourself to a level where you're not going to be duped by some of the uh, clever uh, marketing. <laughs> yeah, some of the misleading labeling of the products. So, for example, with the personal care industry, you know, toothpaste, shampoo, lotions, all those types of things, the federal government doesn't uh, regulate a lot of those products unless it has a USDA seal on it. So there's two ways of, of distinguishing uh, a product that could be misleading from a product that is, is actually as organic as you might be hoping for and what you're paying for. And that's looking for the USDA seal or flipping over the product and, and looking at the ingredients on the back and looking for the little asterisk. And each ingredient that's actually organic will have that little star by it. And that indicates it. But tell us even what that means. I and mean, what is the technical definition of organics as it currently stands in this country? Uh, it's a, the USDA organic standards are incredibly complex, and that's okay. part of where all these corporations are able to take advantage of these loopholes and whatnot. But in a nutshell, and what people, for what the vast majority of consumers understand and, and want in an organic standard, is uh, that it's an agriculturally derived product that is that was not produced with uh, chemical fertilizers or pesticides. Now, what I'm really curious about is that makes sense to me. I'm sure. I'm sure you know the component breakdowns of that or percentages and such get very technical. But what what really concerns me is that the policing of that when you start when you start going outside the country because there's a whole other issue which I want to talk to you about, which is the local versus you know foreign or even not even necessarily just foreign in other countries, but even you know foods coming across the country. But just for a moment, talking about policing standards in other countries, I know that there are. Uh, I think. I think, unless I'm mistaken, that you can have an organic food that has components, organic components that are brought in from other countries, and still get that organic seal. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. In fact, uh, an increasing percentage of USDA organic products are coming from places like China, where the oversight of those products isn't as stringent as it is here in the U.S. Right. Now, that's, that's my question. Is you know, really, I mean, we have a hard enough time policing things in our own country, never mind in other countries like China. So, you know, how is that being regulated, or is it being regulated? There are certifiers over there and uh, in, in, in these various places that are supposed to be overseen 
all of the organic operations there. But the problem with that is that the staff is pretty limited, so the actual site visits, like here in the U.S., a certifier has to make a certain number of visits out to an organic operation to verify, um, you know, that what the organic farmer is claiming is actually taking place. Whereas in China, that's a lot more sketchy. So I would you could so. get certified, and then you could be applying chemicals, and it's it's much more difficult to actually get caught doing that. I, I would think so. I mean, that that just makes sense, and I'm sure it's not just China, but but other countries as well, where you know we maybe can't rely on on the standards as much. So is it? The association's viewpoint to steer people towards, you know, to recommend more uh, 100% U.S. organic uh, products and components in those products? Yeah, we have a pretty strong emphasis on, on the local food campaign, and that's for multiple reasons, par- partially because what we were talking about with um, imports of organics and not knowing 100% for sure if they're actually organic, but also when it comes down to food miles and when with, with organics in general, you're looking at the health aspects of the organic, but you're also looking at the environmental aspects. And so, if you're if you're choosing, let's say you've got uh, a piece of produce um, in your grocery store, and you've got the option of buying something that was grown by a local farmer, or something sitting next to it that was organic but grown in Chile and transported all the way here. Once you factor in that transportation's impact on the environment, depending on what the produce is and depending on what the pesticides and chemicals used on growing it were, you know, you, you, you could be mitigating a lot of that organic benefit. Right. So, and I think that and I, one thing, one statistic that comes up a lot is that the average, uh, you know, morsel of food, I guess, as it were, that ends up on the table travels 1,300 miles collectively as an average. Something like right. that. Right. So when you're looking to. at. Uh, adjusting, trying to change your life to uh, help with global climate change, for example, um, switching to a local diet can have as much of a positive inf- impact as um, buying a Prius or you know a really fuel-efficient vehicle. Yeah, right. Because of what's going in behind uh, behind the scenes to bring to deliver that food or that product to you. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I know that I don't know if this uh, is a part of what the association does, but I know that you know community supported agriculture is something that we talk a lot about on uh, the Green Living Ideas website. There's uh, there's some article and various other information about that. The idea of these uh, locally sustained farms that are supported really by the community uh, financially, in which you you have basically a co-op share in the farm. To uh, to grow produce as an example, and uh, and then and then collect that produce, and you know basically you're buying in. It's almost like you know uh, buying shares in the farm, as it were, uh, to support that farm with your community. Yeah, they're getting to be a lot more popular, and we're we're pretty excited about that. And it's really it's also a great way to to support family farmers because the family farmer is out there, and in, instead of taking all the risk upon themselves, you know, in an organic setting, let's say you go through. a a drought, you don't get the same sort of subsidies and whatnot from the U.S. government as you do if you're a conventional farmer. Mm-hmm. So if you've got the community and, and a number of people sh- uh, purchasing shares into that and you have a bad year, it's kind of like the whole community uh, uh, is able to share that that uh, bad yield. But at the same time, if there's a really good harvest, you know, the whole community is able to 
share that increased harvest too. Right, right. Yeah, and that's just a much more conscious way, I think, of of purchasing your food. And I mean, I'll also say that we we've been involved in one, and uh, the the quality of the food has been really excellent. And of course, that's going to vary depending on the area. But um, you know, it's been great. We've gotten things that actually we wouldn't normally have bought, uh, which has been really great. So we've made you see you get this sort of you know basket of of goodies, and you make use of those, and so it can actually expand and help you branch out and eat more seasonal foods in a lot of cases. I think that when we disconnect from uh, nature and we stop eating foods that are, you know, the foods that grow during certain times of the year are, are done that re- for a reason <laughs> because they're supplying certain nutrients and things that change. There's no coincidences here. So I think it, it, it returns back to the earth a little bit more and creating a more of a connection between nature and the seasons and, and what our bodies are actually looking for. So from It definitely complete- does. And some of the CSAs, too, allow the shareholders to come out and tour the farm. And so it's a really great way, in particular if you have kids of, uh, and you're in an urban setting, of helping your kids understand where their food is coming from because, you know, we've been so disconnected from that for so long. But um, I actually did environmental education for a while. It was in, in, uh, in an urban, very urban area, and uh, it was interesting to see how many kids just were blown away that... Um, you know, an apple comes from a seed, and you know that things grow from dirt. It's just really basic, simple things. But it, for them, their food comes from an Oscar Mayer package in the grocery store. Right, right, or yeah, or at best, perhaps a, just a rack at the, the local supermarket. But, you know, what, what's behind that? It's just like these things magically appear, and that's—I mean—that's that, something I think we overlook. But it's important to. It certainly bears repeating: is that you know, children only know what we show them. Um, and so, you know, yeah, and I don't think there's a lot of education in the school about this. So I think it's something that is really important. You bring up a good point there. So I'm curious about just switching gears for a second to fair trade. And this is another one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot, but without a lot of explanation behind it. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of lip service paid to that, certainly in Northern California, but I think even a lot of people here don't really fully understand what fair trade is all about. Can you give our audience a quick sort of overview and explanation of what that term means? Yeah, in a nutshell, it guarantees that the farmer is going to be making a living wage and that uh, global commodity prices won't uh, affect the farmer to the degree that they're going bankrupt working their working their butts off on the farm. So okay. you know, a lot of the efforts are, uh, you know, you see it with coffee and chocolate and things like that. And it's something that we tend to apply more frequently to imports just because they, they don't have uh, uh, the same type of structures and subsidies and whatnot. You know, if you're getting coffee from Chiapas or something like that, I've visited some of the fair, fair trade uh, coffee farms down there, and it's a stark contrast from those farms that are, are not fair trade, and it's really wonderful to see the community thriving on, you know, it's just a few extra cents per pound for the coffee, but that, that money really goes a long way. Okay. So the certification is separate from the USDA organic standards, although there is a national or uh, international organic standard um, known as IFOAM, that, uh, what is that again? I uh, iFoam I F O A M, and okay. that will basically that that has some aspects to it that uh, that sort of uh, oversee some of the fair trade, and we're kind of hoping that 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 iFoam could become something that would get embraced here in the U.S. as well. Hmm. And there was initially when the USDA organic standards were being made, there was discussion about having 
uh, some of the social justice issues involved with it, but that kind of got kind of snuffed out pretty quick. Mm. So, so this, so when we see this, there, and of course, all these terms usually come with a logo, right? So the logo that we see, the fair trade logo, uh, on, on a particular whether it's coffee or something else, seems to be a lot around coffee. I see that it come up mm-hmm. the most with that uh, for whatever reason. Um, I'm just curious. So that that is from which which association is that is actually producing that logo and giving that seal and doing the certification. Oh, the fair trade certification is usually Transfair, and uh, like I said, there's other uh, other types of certification that are starting to embrace the fair trade. But that was the logo that you're talking about there. Okay. And and so would you say? I mean, again, in the opinion of the association, is that something that we can trust when we see that? That that's that's a pretty still not a diluted standard or seal, or not not easily bought or traded or sold. No, it's it's I've, I've witnessed the benefits of that firsthand, and it's 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 great stuff. And it's really the price difference is is, is pretty menial for how uh, for how far that that money really stretches. Okay. Um, I'm curious about biodynamics. It's something. It's a term that I've heard a little bit. I don't know. I don't know whether it's reached the mainstream consciousness yet or lexicon. Can you talk to us a little bit about what biodynamics are? Yeah. Well, um, biodynamics are starting a little bit. It's getting to be a little bit more popular just because there are a lot of people within the organic sect of the market that don't feel like the organic standards are going far enough. So biodynamics really takes organics to the nth degree and applies a lot of different um, different elements in really trying to work with the, the the energies of the earth, as it were, and in creating really great crops. And so you're not just looking at the chemical applications, and it's very complex stuff, but you're taking it, you know, uh, ten layers deeper into that. So reading up on biodynamics online, you're going to find uh, you'll find variation between different farmers and what they're doing and whatnot. But it's it's really the farmers tend to be the type of uh, agrarian that's really focused on being in complete harmony with the earth. I see, so, and that so that represents a movement within organic farmers. At this point, then, yes, exactly. So not, but not, but not all organic farmers are necessarily biodynamic farmers. Is that correct? Oh, definitely correct. In okay. fact, there's organic farmers that are just barely meeting the USDA organic standards and are, are doing it for profit reasons. Whereas I would think it would be hard pressed to find a true biodynamic organic farmer um, who's doing it for profit. All right, that mass scale. Part of what would, what would negate the biodynamics of it. I see. I see. So it's really for more of the smaller farmers. So perhaps it's something to look for in terms of going back to our earlier discussion about CSAs. Yeah, you de- you would definitely never run into an industrial operation that was that was biodynamic. Biodynamic is going to take all sorts of things into consideration, like it wouldn't allow a monoculture to be um, the organic setting because of true biodynamics would be looking at how the different species of plant are working with each other in a very diverse ecological system. And the same type of thing holds true with the, the treatment of the animals on a biodynamic operation. Okay. Um, so with the organic standards, we we see some actually factory farms out there that are claiming to be organic, and you could never do that on a biodynamic level. Okay. So it seems to me that, that one of the, the major uh, things that we're fighting, I think, uh, well, as conscious consumers as well as an organization such as yourself, is the idea of you know reducing the amount of genetically engineered food that's in the world. How are we doing in that fight? <laughs> How are we doing um, in that effort? <laughs> That's an extreme uphill battle, too. Um, there's there's good news there, and there's bad news there. 
Uh, GE wheat seems to be right on the threshold of being, I mean, it's been approved, but Monsanto hasn't gone forward with the sales of it just because not only consumers but farmers have protested the release of that. It just U.S. farmers don't want it because, and Canadian farmers too, don't want it because they've seen how GE canola and GE corn have really uh, disrupted the global marketplace. So when you have a, a good chunk of the world that refuses to import genetically engineered crops and you're a farmer growing that kind of crop, it gets to be very difficult. It gets even more difficult and complicated when you're a farmer not growing that and you're neighboring a farm that has that and you get the pollen drift into your field uh, and, and suddenly uh, testing your crop shows up that you've got uh, enough GE in there to be um, considered GE. That's like a secondhand uh, smoke of certain types of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't. I, I never I never inhaled. Uh, wow. I never heard of it. Yeah, that makes sense. No man or, nor farm is an island, I, I guess. Uh, all, the, all these things are connected in proximity. Uh, yeah, definitely. So are, is this being driven by, I mean, continue to be driven by a large conglomerates like the Monsantos of the world? Is that really what's pushing? This? Yeah, it's definitely the, the biotech uh, Monsantos of the world. It, and, and their mantra is basically that they feel or, or believe that you can't feed the world's population without genetically uh, engineered foods, but the studies keep coming out that completely negate that. In fact, there was just a study um, I was reading a couple of weeks ago, and they're they're constantly coming out, but showing how with a, a, a conventional pesticide-intensive uh, chemical-intensive crop, the yields are typically higher the first couple of years, but once uh, the organic operation has been established for more than a, a couple of years, the soil has built up so much health that it's able to do yields that go beyond the, the GE uh, chemical-intensive uh, crops. And then it's able to do that in the long term because the soil is healthy into the long term. Whereas when you're applying those chemicals, the pesticides are, are killing useful microorganisms in the soil. And if, if you're doing a genetically engineered crop like BT corn, for example, that, that corn is constantly creating, um, uh, with the BT corn, it's constantly creating a, a pesticide that makes the insects resistant to that pesticide. Mm-hmm. It's a short-term fix, basically. Okay. Well, so I, have another, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, and we're going to run out of time here, so I'm going to have two quick ones that I want to end with. But one is, and this is actually goes right to something that's on the front page of your website at the it's organicconsumers.org, by the way, for those listening in today. Um, it talks about, is Whole Foods taking over? And they've been a guest on this program before, and um, you know we, we do a lot of our shopping. We're very fortunate to have one down the street. Um, but I'm just curious, I mean, at what point does, does the, the small sort of little guy, at what point does David become Goliath? And, and is Whole Foods there in your estimation? Are they still doing good in the world and with regards to organic uh, foods and, and fair trade and, and all of that? Whole Foods, unfortunately, is, is more profit-motivated than motivated by the, the ethics of the organic movement. And, and with that, we've seen their operation within the industry uh, being such that they're almost consistently on the opposite side of the aisle as us as far as... Um, being more open to allowing the loopholes and the organic standards and allowing more synthetics in the foods because with those loopholes and those synthetics, you're able to provide a wider range of quote-unquote organic products. Right, right. 
Well, this is the problem is that the profit motives often fly in the face and are completely contradictory with some of these other things is, you know, purposeful limitation in order to maintain standards. And that's, that's the concern. So, well, and there is an article on the Organic Consumer Association site for anybody who wants to read more about uh, your side on that. Uh, issue, and I think I would like to leave our audience today with maybe a few tips from you of things that people can do, you know, in terms of taking action and voting with their wallets or, you know, signing up for various uh, newsletters and things like that. I, I know you've got some information on your site. Anything you want to leave us with there? Yeah, we do. We have, we've got Organic Bytes. It's a it's an email newsletter that we put together. It comes out every two weeks, and in that we we pack it full of tips for consumers, and we pack it full of news too of what's going on in the organics world. Um, we have a product plunger of the week in there every week. So, for example, um, this week's is focused on how Scott's Miracle Grow company is suing this. Uh, organic fertilizer company um, for absolutely ridiculous reasons. But basically, we, we point out different products that are really good to sort of uh, look for on the store shelves and those that are maybe best to avoid. But the best tip for any consumer is the fact that, uh, unfortunately, money really is power uh, in this type of society. And so when you're going out there with your pocketbook, you're, every single dollar you spend, you're voting yes or no for the way that that product was made. And that's a lot of responsibility to have, and so you really have to educate yourself on, on what you're buying, the types of companies that you want to support, and the types of products that you really want to support. And to do that, for those listening in today, we certainly invite you to uh, go to the organic foods and uh, food and cuisine section of the Green Living Ideas site, as well as uh, sites like the Organic Consumer Association site, which again is organicconsumers.org. Craig Manoa, who is an environmental scientist with the Organic Consumers Association, has been my guest today. Craig, thanks again for being with us and sharing this information. Yeah, thank you. Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.